Hello everyone, thank you for joining us for our sermon video here at the Sonoma Avenue Church of Christ. We have been journeying together through the fruits of the Spirit, and I called this series Good Fruit, uh, to speak of the things that God wants to produce in us. So we're going to jump right in today to Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 25. Paul writes, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. As we get started here today, I want to remind you of some of the things that we've talked about when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit and how it manifests itself in our lives. And one of the really foundational points that we've talked about is that the love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, etc., all these things that Paul wrote about, they are all the work of the Spirit producing those fruits in our lives. The Spirit must produce them because the Spirit-produced love is different than the kind of love that I can just produce on my own. The love of God is different than my love. The peace of God is different than my own brand of peace. So it's not a matter of me trying harder to become more loving or to become more peaceful. Instead, I need to follow the lead of the Spirit in my life, keep in step with the Spirit, and as I follow the lead of the Spirit, it will produce these God-given fruits to me. Secondly, the fruit of the Spirit should be viewed collectively and not individually. What do I mean by that? Uh, while we may need more help with one of these fruits or a different one, probably for each of us, uh, through our study we've seen that each of these fruit, they really build on one another and aren't necessarily meant to just be taken on their own. For example, the fruit of love is essential to all of the other fruit being present. At the same time, you cannot truly exhibit the fruit of, say, kindness without also having the fruit of love present. In a similar way, you can't show patience without the fruit of self-control, kindness, love, and goodness also being present. So all of this just to say that the fruit of the Spirit all work together. They are not different fruits per se. Instead, they are all fruit that are coming from the same tree. And therefore, they work together to build the kind of person that God wants to see, the person who is led by his Spirit. And lastly, these fruit of the Spirit are not just between you and God. In other words, they're not like personal manifestations of something that God is doing in your life, although they do happen deep inside of you personally. And instead, they show themselves in our relationships with others. As God changes our hearts through the lead of the Spirit to love more like He loves, then that is going to show itself in the way that we love other people around us, whether it's in our homes or at the grocery store. I mean, just think about kindness. Kindness is a demonstration 
of the love that God has for us. So these things are played out in our relationships with other people. And the fruit of the Spirit should show itself in all of these different ways. Well, this morning we uh, have come to our last fruit. It is the fruit of self-control. And it is one that is a little bit different than the ones that we've seen so far. So let's ask ourselves first, what is self-control? Now, it's funny, when I talked to a few people this last week and told them that we were doing the fruit of self-control, uh, they immediately panicked in some way. Uh, one person said, oh, you know, I, I know all about self-control. I don't have any, but I know all about it. So what is it, and why are we so afraid of it? Well, self-control quite literally means control or restraint of oneself or one's actions and feelings, etc. So when you think of someone who is self-controlled what kind of images or thoughts come to your mind maybe it's someone of great personal discipline um, maybe it's someone who doesn't you know fly off the handle or have great fits of emotion in any sort of way uh, maybe you think of someone who has like a certain kind of exercise plan or follows a certain diet or does certain things that are really hard for you to do but they do them so well which takes us, if this is how we understand self-control, it, it takes us to kind of a, an interesting difference. Um, when you look at self-control with all of these other fruits, it almost doesn't seem like it fits in. I mean, love, joy, peace, these are all kind of like emotion sorts of words. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Uh, all of these things kind of describe feelings or emotions or kind of movements inside of us that we have. And when I think of someone who is self-controlled, I don't use those, kind, those same kind of descriptors. I don't have those same kinds of ideas or thoughts coming to the front of my head. So the question then for me is if all of these things, these other fruits seem to be, you know, kind of emotion and feeling sort of words. How does this self-control, this idea of self-discipline, how does it fit in with the rest? And, and why is it important for self-control to be there? Well, I think that we can um, understand a lot about self-control if we take a look at what self-control is not. If you think about it, Self-control is something that all of us have an issue with in one way or another. And self-control or a lack thereof can take many, many different forms. Uh, for example, if I were to offer to you this bag of lettuce, if I were to offer you this bag of lettuce, you might eat a piece or two. And in fact, there are probably some of you out there that are saying something like, oh, I love lettuce. Lettuce is so delicious. It's so good, right? But if most of us, if we were given a bag of lettuce, we probably would not have to exercise self-control when it comes to this bag of lettuce. But then, what about this bowl? Now, anything could be in this bowl, right? 
It could be filled with more lettuce. It could be filled with anything. But this particular bowl is filled with a bag that my mother-in-law sent us this week for Easter. And so it, of course, is filled with candy. We've got M&Ms, Starburst, Snickers, Skittles. All the good stuff is in this bowl. Now, while we may not have trouble with self-control over, say, a bag of lettuce, we might have a different issue with this bowl of candy. Because you know as well as I do, if you like candy, which I know not everyone does, just for the sake of example, but if you like candy and this bowl is sitting out in your house, you're going to walk by this bowl and you're going to eat a piece of candy from the bowl. Until eventually you do the thing that we all do when we have bowls of candy in our house. We end up hiding the bowl. Now, hiding the bowl of candy is a little bit counterintuitive. We think it's going to work, but there's just one issue in that we hid the bowl. So we know where it is. And what we're really hoping that happens when we hide the bowl of candy is that the extra 10 steps we're going to have to take to get to the candy is going to deter us from eating the candy. It's a time-honored strategy and tradition, but it doesn't always work that well. But here's my point. The point is not everyone is going to have to display self-control over the same kind of things. As I said, there could be chips in the bowl. There could be nuts in the bowl. There could be any sort of thing in the bowl. Whatever it is, that bowl represents things that we are going to struggle with and where we have to exercise self-control. Now, so there are different things that we're going to have to exercise self-control based on kind of who we are and what we're dealing with, but there are also commonalities, okay? So for us as Christians, for example, we all struggle with sin in our lives. And no matter how self-controlled we think we are, none of us have an answer to the problem of sin in our lives. For example, none of us, though we may really want to, can just decide to stop sinning and boom, sin is gone from our existence. No, it doesn't work that way. Jesus exists because we are incapable of doing that. And we know him as a savior because we need a savior. It has been proven time and time again that we are unable to keep ourselves from sinning. So there's a common commonality. Now, here are some different ways that maybe we struggle with self-control. Uh, some of us lose control of ourselves emotionally. Um, this does not just apply to those that you would maybe traditionally call overly emotional people. Um, it doesn't mean that you cry at every little thing or that you're upset at every little thing. It could mean that you lose control of yourself and you get angry with other people. Uh, it could mean that you lose your patience or that your feelings are easily hurt. Uh, we fight and we argue because we have to prove ourselves and we have to prove that we're right and we don't exercise a lot of self-control in listening to other people. We hold grudges against people that have hurt us and we may never allow them to have our friendship again. We struggle with other things like how much we eat or how much money we spend or what we buy or uh, what we do with our time or any of these different sorts of things. And in each of these cases and in many more that we could list out, we see that we most often do not exercise self-control when we allow some other influence, circumstance, or emotion to compel our action. Okay? Let me say that one more time. 
we most often do not exercise self-control when we allow some other influence, circumstance, or emotion to compel us into action. So this leads us to a key understanding of self-control. Self-control consists of making the best choice in spite of your impulses, emotions, or passions. Self-control is a recognition of what you are feeling, what you are experiencing, what is going on around you, the circumstances that you are in, and not allowing those things to compel you to make a decision that you know you shouldn't make. And let's just sort of like clarify this even a little bit more if we can. You are not showing a loss of self-control when you do something that you did not know was wrong. Uh, for example, with kids, right, when, when infants are crying because they're hungry or they're crying because they want something and they lose it, we don't blame them for not exercising self-control when they're nine months old, right? Because we know they don't know the difference yet. Now, we expect them to learn self-control as they get older, but what do we need to happen first? Well, they have to grow. They have to get more mature. They have to be able to recognize what is right or wrong in a situation. And then, when they can recognize what is right or wrong in a situation, we expect them to exercise self-control. So, we exercise self-control when we make the better choice, even when our impulses are pushing us in a different direction. You exercise self-control on purpose. As William Barclay puts it, he says this, The person who lacks self-control does things which are wrong, but he does not do them by choice. He does them when he is swept away by impulse and by passion, and he knows that he is doing wrong in a sense against his will or judgment. Desire has forced him to depart from the course of action which reason tells him is good. So in other words, <clears throat> we make the wrong choice. We, are, we know we are making the wrong choice, but we are swept away into the making the wrong choice by our passions, our emotions, or the things around us. And I don't know about you, but I can very much identify with that, no matter what category you want to put a lack of self-control of into. And maybe at this point, you're thinking of the words of Paul from Romans chapter 7, which is basically an ode to a lack of self-control. From Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 20. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. 
For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Now, I hope you had your Bibles in front of you as we went through that, because it's easy to get lost in everything that Paul is saying there. But here's the gist of it. He's being about as honest as he can be about the human struggle with sin and our inability to exercise self-control. And Paul was writing these words because he looked at himself and he recognized that there was a battle that was raging within him. Look, he really honestly wanted to do good. He knew what the good was. But he was incapable of doing the good that he wanted to do. And he clearly saw that the choices he was making were wrong and that he was choosing to do something that he should not do, yet he could not keep himself from doing those things. He was swept away in sin and he felt powerless to do anything about it. He said, and this is so great, he said, the law tells us what we should not do, and like fools, we run out and do it. And you know we're like this. Someone tells you you shouldn't do something, and what is the first thing you want to do? I could tell you right now, I could tell you right now to not scratch your head because your head doesn't itch. But as soon as I say don't scratch your head, what are you going to feel? You're going to feel an itch on your head, and you're going to have to scratch it. And Paul, as he looks at this whole mess that is his own life and his own inability to make the right choices and do the right things, he comes to this conclusion from Romans 7, 24 through 25. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, we need to remember that Paul is the same guy who wrote the letter to the Galatians. So he's the same one that is telling us to follow the lead of the Spirit. He's the same one that is telling us to produce through the Spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Same guy. And yet we see from his words that he struggles just as much with producing these things as we do. So how do we gain something that seems so out of reach? I mean, look, if, if we are incapable and if we are going to keep stumbling and struggling and falling, how can we ever really gain self-control? I mean, didn't Paul just say that it's something that's not even possible and he just throws himself on the grace and mercy of Jesus? Yes. 
And we should be grateful, church, that the grace and mercy of Jesus overcomes our inabilities. But there is an explanation for what Paul is encouraging for us, and there is an explanation for how we can gain greater self-control in our lives. And it's not a mystery. In fact, we've already read it. Let us, Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, keep in step with the Spirit. And I've told you this several times throughout this series. The fruit of the Spirit are not produced by us. They are produced by the Spirit. And so if we are going to gain godly self-control, we need the Spirit to give it to us. We have to follow the Spirit. Allow the Spirit to transform us. Allow ourselves to be changed. Because self-control is a gift of God. We're going to jump to the next chapter in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 11. And listen to these words that come right after that reflection from Paul on his lack of self-control. He writes, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those... Let me start that again. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but are you ready according to the spirit those who live according to the flesh have their mindset on what the flesh desires but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their mindset on what the spirit desires the mind governed by the flesh is death but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. It is not your effort to bring you in line and make you a master of yourself. It is God in you that is going to make this possible. God condemned the ways of the flesh, that, that part of us that seems like it cannot control itself. And Paul tells us in the next chapter, you do not have to live this way, being controlled by your sinful nature. Instead, you are invited 
to live in the realm of the Spirit, to let the Spirit of God live in you, to empower you and to lead you into a new life. And far from excusing us from accountability, Paul is telling us that as people who know Jesus and have the Spirit of God within us, we have what we need to make better choices and to display the fruit of self-control. The Spirit lives inside of you. Let it change you. You see the lead of the Spirit. Follow the lead of the Spirit. So in this sense, self-control is the Spirit-powered ability to say no. I will not be driven by my impulses, my appetites, my emotion. I am going to choose something else. And if I am going to exercise self-control, it means that I am going to choose to listen to the voice of the Spirit in my life over every other voice. And, and this makes me see then that self-control may be the key on which this whole thing hinges. I'm not sure that I can bear any of these other fruits effectively if I don't first learn to show the spirit-given gift of self-control. Self-control drives us to make the best decision in whatever circumstance. Self-control pushes us to love when we don't want to love. It pushes us to be kind when we're tired and worn out. It pushes us to be good when we don't have the energy to. Self-control allows us to stop thinking like we think and allows us to start thinking like Jesus. And we will not love like the Spirit is leading us to if we do not choose to put our own prejudices and preconceived notions aside. We will not forgive if we are committed first to holding on to our hurts. We will not live in the joy of being recovered if we wallow in the mire of what we do not have. Self-control causes us to reign in our anger so that we do not lash out. It causes us to stay true to our husbands and wives, not giving in to lust. It causes us to be gentle with people when we do not have to be. It will give us the power, the power of will to say no to temptation, to not put ourselves into situations where we know we are going to fall. And listen, yes, we will still fall, and yes, we are still under grace, but we have to understand that the life that we are called to is better than that. The spirit-powered life is better than that. We can talk until we are blue in the face about the fruits of the spirit, but it won't make any difference if we do not choose to live them out in the life of the community. And we, at this time, in our city, in our country, in our homes, we have an amazing opportunity to live out the fruit of the Spirit in relationship with other people. 
but it occurs to me that maybe the first step we need to take is to ask God to help us through the power of the Spirit exercise some self-control. That we might not be controlled by our impulses, our passions, by our fears, our worries, by the uncertainty that we're surrounded by, but that instead we would choose to follow the lead of the Spirit and see where the Spirit is taking us. I pray for us today that God would move in our hearts, that he would show us the leading of the Spirit, that we would choose to follow, and that as God gives us the gift of self-control, a gift that he can only give to us, that we would bless this world by producing the fruit of his Spirit in this place. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Spirit which guides us and gives us what we need. Father, we pray that you would make the leading of your Spirit obvious to us. And God, I pray that you would give us the strength, the self-control, the will to choose you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here with me today. We've got a lot of stuff going on uh, this Holy Week leading up to Easter. Be sure to check out our Facebook page for any new information and things that are coming up. Thank you for being here with me today, and God bless you.